Good morning and welcome to Ordinary Life, which is an educational offering of United St. Paul's United Methodist Church. I was all conjumbled today. Uh, today I was in the first worship service, St. Paul's reopened for worship today, and we had a good number of people there. And this is Wayne Herbert who's sitting with me. You know Wayne from last Sunday, and those of you who attend Ordinary Life know Wayne anyway. Um, we're going to reopen in two weeks. Wonderful. The, Wonderful. You're on the steering committee, and we're going to follow the same protocols that St. Paul's is using. And what are those going to be? Doesn't seem to be much of anything. Well, that's good. <laughs> the, that what means we'll be able to come in and sit down and watch what, Ordinary Life. What the stated purpose, uh, as the stated protocol is, that if you're fully vaccinated, you don't have to wear a mask. You can sit wherever you want to. The request is that if you've not been vaccinated, and we know that all people have not been, have not had a chance to be, the request is that you wear a mask and socially distance. Um, but the steering committee, of which Wayne is a part, will meet tomorrow, and we will firm this up. At the moment, there will be no limitation on number on June 6th when we gather, so you don't have to register. You won't have to sign a health form when you come, just show up. That's in two weeks on, on June the 6th. Um, next Sunday will be the last Sunday that we only live stream. Now, several people have asked when we go back to in-person gathering, will we continue to live stream? And the answer to that is we have been live streaming Ordinary Life for a long time. Even before we had this kind of setup, uh, Adam Deloach, who is now a member of the steering committee, was live streaming Ordinary Life over Facebook. Facebook with an iPhone. And it worked. Very well. So um, I had a young woman come up to me after the third service today and say that she uh, had to submit a project in her New Testament class that she was taking at Trinity University, and she used Ordinary Life podcast as her resource material. <laughs> I don't mean the Watch podcast <laughs> that, that Holly and I do, but the podcast that comes out on Tuesday morning that uh, Tim Leatherwood posts of the recording of this. No, we will continue to live stream. And um, we just need another week or so to make sure that we know how to work this set up uh, and give Tim a break moving to um, in-person St. Paul stuff and then we'll do that. So next Sunday, Holly, who is attending her niece's high school graduation out of the state today, We'll be back, and we're going to do a That Was the Year That Was or Wasn't reminiscence about the 15 months that we have co-taught Ordinary Life, just the two of us with the floor crew in this room. And then um, on the 6th, we're going to open up. I'm going to introduce a new theme in Ordinary Life. And um, what else? We're still going to do, Holly and I are still going to do the podcast, and um, so you do. Well, uh, and in Holly's place, uh, I'm going to hold up the collection plate. Thank everybody for the generous contributions to our Ordinary Life Fund, and make a request to go to the Ordinary Life website, push on the donation button, make a donation, use the memo field to put that it's for Ordinary Life. Uh, we have, on the steering committee, have been using the contributions for a variety of really good causes that both Ordinary Life and St. Paul's uh, support. And again, really thank you for your generosity and find that button. Thank you. And I have to ask, John, where is Olivia today? Uh, she's at a graduation party for the weekend. A graduating party. Okay, graduation party. My granddaughter, our granddaughter, same thing. Boy, they have a lot of activities that are going on. But thanks uh, to John Watson and William Budge and Tim Leatherwood for being the floor crew that makes this happen. And um, Callista Herbert is sitting here too. So good to see her. Uh, are you, are you going to resume doing announcements for us when we start regathering? Whatever you want. Okay. <laughs> I would like that. Okay. And I think people would too. People like a chance to visit, and we'll find out what we're going to do about sacralizing the cookies somehow. 
I don't know how we're going to do that. Individually wrapped? We, we could do that. Uh, for years, <laughs> Daryl had, has had a habit of having a little styrofoam cup of goldfish ready for me. <laughs> and I would pick them up on the way. I'd come bring my gear up here and then run across to the first service and run back from the near life, then go back. And I'd take that styrofoam cup. When I walked in this building this morning at 7.30, before 7.30, Daryl was standing there and he said, want some goldfish? And handed me <laughs> an individual pack of goldfish. So I haven't eaten them yet. There you go. So I want you to know that uh, no matter who you are, no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, you are welcome here. And I hope this time contributes to your growth in uh, spiritual and religious awareness, your love for yourself and your neighbor, and our ability to be in touch more with sacred mystery. So Wayne proposed several weeks ago when we knew that Holly was not going to be here, that he and I have a dialogue about our separate journeys. And so I put, I may have this uh, uh, slide come up more than once because you sent me some slides. I call this Beyond Belief and Non-Belief, a dialogue between Bill Curley and Wayne Herbert. I'll put this icon up and then I've got all your slides here, which I can, I can do. Let me back up though, go back to that. Wonderful. Um, we'll do it when we get there. Um, I very lovingly and affectionately refer to you as our resident atheist. Wayne, how in the world, you've been, you and I have had a relationship for 18 years, right? 18. Uh, well, Bill, as you know, uh, I first met Bill in a therapeutic environment. I um, uh, was really depressed in my life, rage, uh, powerlessness, and uh, after visiting two or three different uh, therapists and psychologists uh, who wanted to fix me, fix me with drugs, fix me with cognitive behavioral work, I met Bill. And Bill, the first thing Bill said to me was, do you know that your depression is not the problem, it's a symptom that something isn't working in your life? And for the first time, rather than trying to fix me, Bill showed me that there was an opportunity or a way of living life that could be done much more happily. And that started my relationship with Bill shortly after leaving uh, therapy with Bill. He invited me to come to the Ordinary Life class. I was hooked. I've been here ever since. You know that. Um, you know what Carl Jung said. Now you can't say this to somebody the first session in therapy because it would freak them right out. <laughs> it may do it right it, now, it, Bill. It, it, Carl, Carl Jung said that the reason that a, a, a therapeutic relationship is successful is solely because of the love that exists between the therapist and the client. Mm. And it's got to work both ways. It's, well, Bill, I love you. I, I love can tell you. you that. I'm, it, we, I'm glad for your history. I'm glad that you've been involved here. And I remember one of the first things I said to you was, um, you just need some information. <laughs> and uh, there, information is available out there. And I, I think I got you to the Mankind Project. I did the Mankind Project, the New Warrior Training Adventure Weekend. Uh, I called it transformational in my life. Uh, as a matter of fact, I came home on Sunday evening after a wonderful weekend that opened my eyes. I told my wife, I said, I've been transformed this weekend. She said, I don't believe in weekend transformation. However, she has hung around with me and has finally decided that probably uh, a few changes happened to me, and they've been happening ever since. They have. They have been. Uh, and I would highly recommend uh, the New Warrior Weekend for any man that is uh, seeking an opportunity for a larger perspective on life, some spiritual growth. Uh, there, there, there is that program that I know about, and there is also a program called Illumin that is that was started by Father Richard Rohr years and years ago, but as he's moved closer to retirement edge and edging himself out of the picture another group has taken that over but if you look on the 
internet for Illumin. Those are the only two male rites of initiation programs that I know about, but I, I highly recommend them. There is one more, Bill, oh. and it's called the Crucible. And actually, the Crucible uses all of the protocols of the New Warrior Weekend, but it is done in a more religious environment. Uh, they change a few of the processes that they disagreed with from uh, a biblical perspective. Uh, but it is also available uh, here in Houston if and when the pandemic uh, begins to allow them. I understand New Warrior may begin again in October with one of the first uh, trainings this year. So you and I are sitting here in the same place, but boy, we sure didn't start out in the same, in a similar place. I would say so. Uh, as a matter of fact, and that's a great segue, Bill, I, I know who you are now. I've heard Bill speak uh, about the fact that he came from a Baptist background um, and ultimately ended up here. But what I don't yet really know, Bill, is how did you end up making the decision to go to seminary school to become a, a Baptist preacher? Well, it, it was not an originally a decision to be a Baptist preacher. I never wanted to do that. I never, that was not what I wanted to do. Um, in short, I, I, I've never not been involved in church. I mean, my parents were church attenders, and so they made me as their second son uh, attend church. Um, I very much believe family of origin strongly influenced my vocational choice at a level that I was not even aware of till I got involved in my own therapy, my own family of origin therapy. Um, but I grew up in a benignly fundamentalist, racist family. And from the get-go, I've had this kind of oppositional mindset to question and push against things and to wonder. And um, I got um, I got into university. I got involved in debating at the same time that I got involved in the civil rights movement. And I had a professor in the university, his name is Lane Boutwell, I will forever be grateful to Lane, who said to me one day, you got to get out of here. <laughs> you need to go somewhere where you can pursue what you're interested in. And he had been my professor long enough to know that I was interested in philosophy and psychology mm. and that sort of thing. And uh, I was Baptist, raised Baptist. I, I could have gone to Vanderbilt, got accepted in Vanderbilt, but there was something in me that heeded his advice to get away from home. And so as a junior, I transferred from the university that I was attending in Tennessee to right. Baylor University. Oh, to Baylor? Baylor. Oh, okay. Got involved in studying religion and psychology and fell absolutely head over heels in love with it and decided I want to study more of this. There was a seminary up on the road called Southwestern. Uh, it was academically one of the best seminaries in the United States at the time. Since then, the fundamentalists have taken it over. I went there, and within three weeks, I had determined that what I wanted to do was to teach. I wanted to teach psychology and religion, and I got another Bachelor of Divinity there. I got a doctorate in theology there. I taught there for two years and then got fired. So even back then, you had uh, a connection between religion or spirituality and psychology. From the get-go. Interesting. And you got fired. I got fired. Why did you get fired? Because my theology, I was told, was too aggressive. And I wish now that I had asked what that meant, because I didn't <laughs> I'm gonna, just going to ask. I think it meant that I was too, quote, liberal <laughs> or whatever, but I did get fired. Uh, there was a church in Houston, Texas called Covenant Baptist Church, which still exists, and it styles itself as a liberal, progressive, inclusive fellowship. And from the get-go, Covenant was open to everybody. Including and, gays? Including gays. Very, very uh, ecumenical in its orientation. And I served that church for 16 years. During that time, wow. I got 
uh, I was given a, a sabbatical, and um, thanks to Bill Martin, my friend, I, I did a sabbatical at Harvard, continuing to study psychology and religion. I worked with James Fowler while he was developing his faith development program. And I would say that that 1972, 1973 era really was a, a watershed for me. I came back to Houston, and um, as I said, I served that church for 16 years. After going through a divorce and was single for seven years, I started my own private practice. And after four years of being single, I met this gorgeous woman named Sherry Beeman, and, the and we lived happily ever after. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> uh, if you, 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 I don't want to dominate this, but uh, I, I, we were Sherry and I were looking for a church. And so we came, we looked in several places, and I heard that Wayne Day, a guy that I had done a, a, a psychology internship with, he, I heard that he had come to St. Paul's. And Wayne and I, over the years, had had questions about whether he was going to stay in the ministry or not, but he, he came here. I came down to pick him up for lunch, and he invited me into the sanctuary, and I went, Wow. And so um, told Sherry that we came the next Sunday, joined two Sundays after that. There were fewer people in the first service then than there are now in the choir. <laughs> and Wayne said, I'm trying to build this church. I would like for you to teach a Sunday school class. I said, okay, I will teach a class for 12 weeks called Mind and Spirit. I taught that class for 10 years. I, I, I became an unpaid staff member, seriously, I was in the worship service every Sunday. I was doing a pastoral prayer every Sunday. I ended up marrying people, baptizing babies, conducting funerals. I had become an unpaid staff member. And in a very powerful dream, I got the message, I got to stop. <laughs> and so I took a hiatus of four years, went back four. and got trained in union analytic psychology. And I began to discern in that time that my original yearning was to be a teacher. It was, it was accurate. And so I approached Dr. Jim Bankston and I said to him, I've made this discovery. I, I want to start teaching. And he said, I want you to come back on, on, in the church here. And I said, I can't do that unless you pay me. Mm. And he said, I can't pay you unless you become a Methodist. So I had to go back to the seminary to have Methodist history, doctrine, and polity. Even though I had a postdoctoral degree from Harvard, I had to go back to seminary. I'm not a Methodist. Apparently you passed the test. I passed the test. But, I mean, I've, I'm in, retired now from the annual conference, but I didn't grow up in the Methodist system, so I don't know the Methodist system like my colleagues here do who started out and went to what we call Nagahide parish, past parsonages where the church provides you a place to live. Anyway, <laughs> I've been teaching Ordinary Life now for 23 years. How My fortunate. How about you? Well, um, I'll tell you, Bill, I'll start with uh, a slide, if you don't mind. I hope uh, I have these in the right order. That's close enough. Now, Bill happened to call me the resident atheist. And I, I thought I would take just a moment to define what that is. Uh, the slides that are sitting up on the screen, uh, I hope, there's obviously there's a theist. Uh, a lot of people who come to church are probably theists. They believe in the existence of a God. Uh, uh, obviously here in the U.S. Uh, uh, we have a, a large Christian contingent. There's an anti-theist. There are people who believe there are no God. They just cannot believe a God could, could possibly exist. And as a matter of fact, one of the things I recall, this was a bill that said it, that when somebody asks him, do you believe in God? It's probably not the one that you're thinking about. But an anti-theist just says there's no such thing as God. It's not possible. And then there is an atheist. And this is me. At this point in time, uh, after everything in my life, after listening to Bill and many, many years of ordinary life, uh, I'm an atheist. 
I can't prove that God does exist. I can't prove that God doesn't exist. But as it turns out, in terms of spiritual growth, in terms of personal growth, gratitude, happiness, relationship, empathy, that doesn't really matter to me anymore. That's not a necessary thing. And Bill, that last slide I'll put in, atheists do have a fundamental problem. Uh, this is Rod Serling, and he's asking, you're an atheist stuck at a green light with a car behind you, in front of you, that says, honk if you love Jesus on a bumper sticker. What do you do? My wife is laughing. Probably nobody else is. I got it. All right. Uh, Bill mentioned uh, family of origin, and my lack of belief or non-belief in God also stemmed from uh, family of origin issues. Uh, my father lost his father when he was about three years old when he was deserted, uh, just simply deserted. His mother moved over to Canada from England, and when he was three years old, he, uh, uh, he was a ruffian. He joined, ran away from home, joined the Army at 16. He went AWOL from the Army and joined the Air Force. After the end of the war, he continued to be sort of footloose and fancy free. Uh, as a matter of fact, as a young man, he was arrested for joyriding a car and was arrested in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, taken down to the jail where he met my mother. She was in jail? She was a police stenographer. Uh, my mother is a Dukabor Russian, or was a Dukabor Russian. Her formal name was Luba Kazakov, but she was a country girl that made good. She left Saskatchewan, Canada, went to Vancouver, went to stenography school, and went to work for the police department as a police stenographer where she met my father. And as I say, the rest is history because uh, I'm here. Um, my dad finally did settle down. He uh, became a salutatorian at University of British Columbia, graduated with honors and a degree in physics, uh, and he became a confirmed atheist based on his life. Uh, there was no God that ever did anything for him. He had a miserable upbringing, no dad. My mother was sort of on the opposite side of the fence. She wasn't exactly sure. So as boys, we would be occasionally taken to church, occasionally taken to Sunday school. I remember uh, one time we were taken to Sunday school and we were told a story and we were instructed after the story to draw a picture of what it was that we heard. And my brother and I drew a picture and the Sunday school teacher came over and she took our picture, she ripped them up and said, you little heathens, Uh, that was sort of my introduction to religion. What was the story? I don't even remember. I think it was a Jesus story, an Easter story. And we were supposed to depict a picture of Jesus at Easter. I'm not even sure anymore, Bill. It was a long time ago. Wow. So we... Uh, How old was your mother when she came from Russia? My mother was born in Canada. Her oh. parents came from Russia in 1906, right about the time that uh, the Tsar fell in Russia. So they were dirt poor farmers in Saskatchewan, uneducated. Uh, I visited my uncle's house. We had electricity, but uh, wood stoves, things like that. So in any event, um, for me, uh, I had a beginning that had no religious background, uh, and as a matter of fact, uh, it sort of led me to believe that unless somebody is inculcated into religion in the first few years of life, they often never become religious. Um, later on, as I began to grow up, though, I became distinctly anti-theist. There can't be a God. How can there be a God out there that loves you so much that he's going to send you to hell if you don't love him back? That just didn't make any sense to me. And then there's the problem of miracles. I'm also an engineer, a scientist, a physicist. How can you have miracles? Walking on water, fishes, loaves. Um, and 
I had this attitude that anybody who is into religion it must be a sheep, must be a lemming. How can you believe this? You're willing to believe anything. Um, as I continued to grow up, however, I still had this nagging feeling that what if there is a God and I'm really screwing up here? Mm -hmm. So uh, I read the Bible from beginning to end. Uh, I have no idea what revelations mean still. Uh, and I don't know what I got out of it, but there were a lot of begats. I tell people that if you want a surefied way to become an atheist, read the Bible. <laughs> well, it worked. It's worked, yeah. <laughs> it worked. Uh, because I think the Bible has to be with, understood within a, a particular faith context. Um, you know, I, I do not know why I had, uh, I know I'm a, a seven on the Enneagram and we're curious and want to know things and like how magic tricks works and that sort of thing. <laughs> but from the from being a very early child, I, I heard the stories in church and I really did want to believe that if I accepted Jesus into my heart then everything would be fine. It just never worked for me. It never, I, you know, I, I was promised peace of mind and that I didn't have it. And I now realize that that was because I grew up in the kind of family that I did that was on the surface, really good show, but underneath there was lots of turmoil and drama that it took me years to uncover. Um, my mother and father, I'm convinced, had to get married. The depression hit. My father lost his job. They had to move in with his parents. My grandparents, my father's parents, hated my mother. And they had to live with them for the first two and a half years of their marriage. Cut it had to be a miserable thing for them. Then uh, I was born six years later after my brother. And I was named after both of my grandparents. So I was a peace offering. Hmm. And look what I do for a living. I'm a therapist. <laughs> I'm a, you know, putting things back together person. Um, so, you know, one of the things that I would say to people about doing spiritual living and spiritual work, it's the two rules that, that I would suggest to people. Uh, one is very Buddhist, then Jesus, and that's the what I call the rule of residence. If, if you hear something and your heart says, yeah, that makes sense to me, Open up to it because there's something there to pursue. And on the other hand, there's what I call the rule of resistance. And that is that if you hear something, not, not just from anybody, but if you hear something from, quote, a trusted source, and you go, whoa, it gets your goat, then pay attention to that too because there's something there to pay attention to. So I have... Use the, those two rules to uh, follow the teachings of, first of all, Richard Rohr for over 30, 40 years, um, then meeting Ilya Deleo and all the resources that they put me in touch with, Jim Finley being one of the primary ones. Jim Finley's teachings on Jesus and Buddha have, uh, are things you can get from the, the Richard Rohr Bookstore, Center for Action and Contemplation. I probably, I heard... Jim Finley give that series in person. I probably listened to him six times. Um, it just makes sense to me. Hmm. And part of that is living without a label. Wayne, when I was in the seminary, in a Southern Baptist seminary, in the 60s, late 60s and early 70s, I was taught there is no God. Now, let me be clear about what they meant by that. This is the time when J. John A.T. Robertson's book came out and said, let's, let's stop using the word God for a century. Because the word God, immediately, when you say the word God, immediately people think, oh. Sky Daddy. Yeah, or prayer. You know, you remember when we had Michael Morewood, he said, the new, what he called at that time, the new cosmology, what we know, evolutionary cosmology, is causing us to rethink everything. And when people hear the word prayer, they pray to a God out there somewhere. That's not what prayer is about, but that's a whole nother. And asking for something. Asking for something. 
Prayer is about a relationship. And mostly it's, um, and again, this is Zen, it's Buddhist, it's Jesus. It's about listening. It's just about being present to what is. And we have a lot to learn from First Nations people, indigenous peoples, about the spirit coming up and out of the earth and sustaining us through the plants that we eat, the animals that we sometimes eat, uh, everything. We, we're dependent on the being involved in this, in nurtured by the spirit. Well, um, you're talking about, again, the family of origin and unsettled uh, family life. And one of the reasons that I had such a difficulty in believing in a, a beneficent God who would look after me, make it good, was I was miserable in my life. Mm -hmm. uh, powerless, unhappy, small. And who was that that was going to fix things up for me? And I really, I came to the conclusion that there are two kinds of people in the world that get into religion. Uh, one of those is people who have fear, and that they're looking for certainty, uh, they're, they're looking for a way out, they're looking for a way to be saved. My dad is dead, but hey, I have a big daddy up there that's going to look after me and make everything okay. And I could understand that if not accept it. And... The other thing I saw were people who came to religion because it filled them with something that made them feel good. Uh, and I'll take my own mother-in-law for an example. She has been a practicing Catholic forever and ever and ever. And she is just nothing but a sweetheart who believes what she believes in. And in her religion, it gives her strength, it gives her peace gives her happiness, and I certainly couldn't find that within religion. Just, it wasn't there for me. Uh, so uh, I guess to move into the transition then, Bill, uh, when I first started coming here and you started talking about things like patience, humility, empathy, love, and using Jesus as the man, the metaphor uh, to explain how all of this worked, it was sort of an awakening for him. Not sort of, it was a giant awakening that there is more in this world than an objective view of what the world is about. There's a subjective view of how we relate. Uh, and it, it, uh, it helped me learn to live with life and, and become a, a man that is filled with gratitude and happiness, even though I'm an atheist. So let's talk a little bit uh, uh, about Jesus. Um, the problem with Jesus is what his followers have done to him. Mm. And that is that, that many Christians have made Jesus into an exclusive club uh, and a, a, by claiming that, that Christianity as it is now known is the um, best, top, prior, whatever word you want to use. It's the ultimate religion, and if you're not Christian, you're not really saved. Okay. Indeed. As a matter of fact, Bill, I think Richard Rohr had something to say about that. We worship Jesus instead of following him on his same path. Oh, yes. We made Jesus into a mere religion instead of a journey toward union with God and everything else. This shift made us into a religion of belonging and believing instead of a religion of transformation. Thank you, Father Richard. There it is. So think about this. You know, I have, I have said several times, as a matter of fact, recently uh, gave a, pretty much a whole class on uh, Anselm and the fact that he wrote the most successful piece of bad theology ever written. And that <laughs> says that Jesus died for your sins, which when you stop to think about it, makes God into a divine child abuser. Hmm. And it lets me off the hook the way I see it. I can do everything I want to do, and it's all A-OK. -okay. 
Well, uh, yeah, and uh, you know, this is one of the reasons I love Daramuda Muruku's work so much, because he puts into, he uses a, a, a Jesus paradigm, but teaches a very, very Buddhist teaching about, you need to grow up, you need to accept responsibility for yourself, and it's about, you know, when the disciple appears, the teacher goes away. Now, in Buddhism, they say when the student is ready, the teacher appears. Well, you don't stay a student forever. And so when you become a t disciple or a teacher yourself, then that, that teacher goes away and you participate in this community of equality, in this community of empowerment where nobody's better or worse than. Which is why I think labels are, are so, so very dangerous. Think about this. Jesus saved a lot of people before he ever died. And he saved them by seeing them and by including them. All the healing miracles are metaphors about Jesus saying to somebody who is blind or lame or has a skin condition or whatever, Jesus says, look, I don't see the condition that you and other people say defines you. I see past that to the person you really are. I see your wholeness. And that's what people got attracted to Jesus about was that he didn't exclude them. He didn't make them on the outside, which is what the religious and cultural political people did at the time. If you were blind, if you were lame, if you had a skin condition, if you had touched a dead person, if you, and the list goes on and on and on, then you were shunned. And in that belonging system, that was a very painful thing. And Jesus said, no, you're not. You're included. Come on, sit down. Let's have lunch. So, Bill, has Jesus saved me, you, the disciple here, speaking at Ordinary Life every Sunday? I come every Sunday. I'm growing. I'm happy. Has Jesus saved me? Yeah. There you go. I have so, to take that all back. <laughs> I love this. I love this. It's hard, isn't it? Um, yes. When you become a cognitive minority and you don't buy into the system's message, then you're looked at as if you're kind of crazy. Rora would say, um, and I, I do I, you know Ken Wilber. Yes, I've read Ken Wilber. I, I confess, I, I've heard Ken Wilber speak. I, I hear him better than I read him. He's got some books that I read and they just go, whoa, over my head. But in Ken Wilber's integrative philosophy psychology model, I think there are nine levels of growth. Correct. I think that's right. And, and he says that if, you're, if you are in, let's say, level six, in his model, there are a lot of different models of this. You look back on somebody who's in level four as if they're stupid, they're, right. they're, that they're ignorant. Yeah, and you I, look I'm, at, I'm advanced. And I'm advanced. Until you see somebody who is at level eight, and then you think they're crazy. <laughs> you know, they, they, need, they need to get they, on they the rails. To, they need to get, get back, back to six. Back whatever. <laughs> so um, I think that that going forward, I think organized religion, organized Christian religion has really got a struggle in the future. Um, it's declining everywhere. Uh, secularization, as the sociologists call it, is really taking over. Uh, it's inroading it's Protestant Christianity. Christians, the Methodists look at them having our, their, our own struggle with the full inclusion issue, which from the standpoint of somebody who says we need to practice full inclusion, everybody's welcome at the table, seems like such an idiotic argument to be having. Um, but organized religion is going to do that. I don't know a, a place where when there's been a crunch, religion has been helpful. Hmm. Well, on that subject, one of the reasons I like this slide so much is that... Um, on a lot of websites I read that uh, have to do with religion, the people who are anti-theist are so against anything to do with a God, anything to do with a religion, 
And a lot of that has to do, obviously, with uh, discrimination and bigotry, anti-gay, misogyny, uh, and of course all of the other things that religion has been used for. But what these people are missing the boat then, they have thrown all of the possibilities away of spirituality, connection, growth, uh, all the things that the principles of ordinary life teaches. And uh, I find it difficult to deal with people that are just so adamantly, well, how could you possibly be an atheist that believes in the teachings of Jesus? Mm -hmm. That's all just a lot of mumbo jumbo and it's silly. Somebody hasn't taken the time to look at the wisdom. Um, Ken Wilber's, uh, the thing that sticks with me about Ken Wilber is his subjective and objective. Uh, subject, objectively, I can look at you, see a man with gray hair, probably aging, wears glasses, all of that. I'm getting there, Bill. I'm getting there. I am wearing the glasses. Uh, <laughs> um, but I can't know you unless I talk to you and hear you and understand you. And the more that I learn about myself, the more I'm able to ask questions about you. And I, I see real problems in society as we move away into this individuality, a, uh, a, a disdain for anything that resembles religion. Uh, I wonder where this, we're going to go. So I can't talk to those people. I don't blend in with them. And I have a perspective on religion, on God, uh, on spirituality that a lot of other people don't seem to entertain. Uh, I, I feel blessed to come to Ordinary Life because I watch 100 to 150 people come in here every weekend. And while we come from every different kind of walk of life, we have a commonality of sitting here listening to a way of being, a way of living, uh, a way of thinking, a way of having a spiritual practice, Bill. Mm -hmm. That's a wonderful thing. So I, I, as you know, I try very consciously not even to use the word God. I think that it's problematic, and I agree with the book, John A.T. Robertson. I think that we should leave that word go. I, I think that we do have some guidelines, some parameters that provide a crucible in which our spiritual living has got to be done. And they are, some of them are a tough sell, in, particularly in our culture. Uh, one, of, one of the elements that make up this crucible is um, what I'm going to call post white male hmm. colonial religion. We've got to move beyond that. We just absolutely have to move beyond that. And it's the religion that most people have embraced, particularly that you and I run into in this geographical area. Most people, that's the religion that they've, that they've gotten. Yep. We, part, another thing that makes up this crucible has got to be the insights and learnings that we're getting from evolutionary cosmology. This is why I resonated so with Ilya Delio, with Michael Moorwood, with Daramu de Muraku, among others, is that they're saying, look, you live in this cosmos that is so gigantic that your brain can't even conceive of it. Now, where's God? Well, where is God? That's yeah. a great question. Right here. Right here. Right here. Is that God? Well, and there's another component of the crucible in which we have to work. And that's paradox and contradiction. Okay. Because God is here and God is not. Both at the same time. And we, our minds can't get that. And we, and we, have, we have a lot of paradoxes in, in, in spiritual teachings. And we've got to learn, I think, to be willing to live somehow in the tension of opposites. And um, it, I, I think the, the way that I first got this so powerfully was in a teaching that I heard Jim Finley do. And for those of you who don't know, 
Jim Finley grew up in an alcoholic, physically abusive home. His father was physically abusive. He found something by chance in the high school library that was a quote by Thomas Merton. When he was 17, Finley ran away from home, went to Gethsemane Monastery in Kentucky, became a novice, became a monk, and Thomas Merton was his spiritual director for something like 18 years or whatever, however long it was. Finley left the monastery, became a Buddhist, which you can do. You can be both in the Christian tradition and Buddhist, and then became a clinical psychologist. And now he is a spiritual teacher, and you can go on YouTube and see Jim Finley. He is a wonderful, I mean, you just sense when you see him, hear him speak, that his authenticity. And I, I heard Finley offer this teaching that I'm trying to articulate, and you can't articulate it, about God being here and not here. God is present and not present. We can apprehend God, we can know God, we can know nothing of God. All those things, all that kind of contradictory stuff. And I sense Finley feeling people in the, in, the, in the class pushing back on him. And he stopped his teaching and he said, look, I'm not you, but I'm not other than you either. Mm. I'm not God. But I'm not other than God either. And I went, wow, that resonated with me too. That, yeah, that, that, that feels right to me. Because we're all part of the whole, part of the one. We're all connected. Absolutely. And people push back because that interferes with the traditional belief of a, an all-knowing, all-being, all-helpful God. So... I will ask people in ordinary life occasionally to bring your friends to class and I'll get this kind of feedback. I asked my friend to come and they asked me, is he a Christian? Does he believe in the Bible? Does he believe in the resurrection? Does he believe in the literal nature of miracles? These are all the litmus tests. These are litmus tests of are you doing it right? Is there fundamental being fundamental Christian? And I've spoken about those things. I, I wish I had thought of this. Matt Russell is the one that told me this. Matt, who used to be on the staff here, preached a sermon here one time, and somebody walked out of church and said to him, "I don't like what you said." And Matt said, "I'm sorry." And the guy said, "Are you a Christian?" And Matt said, "I don't know." Tell me what you think a Christian is, and I'll tell you whether I'm that or not. <laughs> That's brilliant. That's just a br brilliant way of, of seeing it. What, what do the teachings of Jesus, what, do the, what does the person of Jesus save people from? And it's not from hell. It's from isolation and fear. So that the, the, the essence, and this is another thing I think that we have to get. Um, I'm currently reading um, Shelby Spong's book on the fourth gospel, The Teachings of a Jewish Mystic. And Christians need to re-grasp the Jewish nature of Jesus. And when Jesus was asked, what's the greatest law? His answer was, love God and love your neighbor. Mm. That's, that's the law. So, Bill, you're extremely well-read in psychology, religion, spirituality. I've spent a fair amount of time reading a fair number of books. So what if uh, an individual has a more simplistic view of Jesus and feels saved by somebody who's capable of performing magical deeds. Does that matter? If they're loving. Then it doesn't really matter what they believe. If they're loving. If, if they're, they're loving. loving. If they're loving. You know, the, the, the psychological principle is um, that 
if I love and accept myself, I'm better able to love and accept you. And if I love and accept you, I'm better able to love and accept myself. And what matters is that we, with love, see each other home. We make this journey through birth to death, and if we're lucky, we get to live a while. If we're not lucky, we get a disease or get hit by a truck or something like that. But if we're lucky, our opportunity is to share this journey with other people to say, oh, wow, did you see that? Did you experience that? And we also are with each other in the really horrible, horrific moments of life when somebody else in our group dies uh, or has life cut short or has a major failure, and we come together to be empathetic and loving and supportive to people. This is the, the original religious rituals that we have access to are around death, around funerals, about people supporting each other when one of their loved ones died. Now, they had a different cosmology than we have. They thought about death in a different way, and yes, they really believed that you went to some afterlife and all that. But now our cosmology won't hold to that. Which is sort of a segue into what's next for the church. Um, what do people do, what can a church do to replace uh, the idea of a resurrected Jesus and an all-powerful God and things like that uh, and still provide for uh, ritual, um, process, uh, meaning. Uh, I think you yourself have said, uh, you know, the Nicene Creed, it, it, it's not really relevant in a, in a world of uh, evolutionary cosmology. What does a church have to do uh, and how, do, how does a church move from old white man, 2,000-year-old Christianity into a modern way so that I'd want to go over to the sanctuary there and maybe sing a song about something. I don't know what. How do we get there? Well, very often, and I have taken on somewhat the struggle to do some of that in this church, very often what you will hear from people in charge of religious services, well, you just have to be patient. Now, what that means being translated, let's just be frank here. What that means is lower your expectations. It's what it meant in the civil rights struggle when my parents and others said, now you're just going to slow down. You have to be patient. These things take time. That being translated is lower your expectations. Mm. No. And don't bother us. Don't bother. No. Um, you've got to remember that Jesus was executed because he was an agitator. So um, we, have, we have people like Ilya Delio and Michael Moorwood and uh, Daramuda Muraku who give us a model of what we can do in these things. For one thing, I would, I would think it would be helpful for us to give up the notion that God needs to be worshipped. Mm. God, God doesn't need us to bow down. What God, if you want to use that language, what sacred mystery wants to evoke from us is the very thing that we're talking about. A community where people are empowered to live fearlessly and lovingly. That's, mm. what, that's what we are. So when Michael Moorwood or Daramud Muraku says, okay, how are you going to rethink what you call worship, your liturgy? Well, there are really creative ways that we can do this, that we can gather together to give our thanks, for example, for vaccines, to give our thanks that we're able in two weeks to start gathering publicly where we've We've not been able right, to be. Right. And, and to have ways to celebrate that, to ritualize that. And, um, you know, I went to my granddaughter's graduation two nights ago. It was a great ritual. It was a great celebration. And we didn't have to thank the sky god for that. We thanked her parents for doing a good job and the teachers for doing a good job and that there's a context in which kids can learn and be safe and um that's what we can do. There are also times when I think that we need to come together and lament. 
uh, lament uh, the fact that it's a whole lot easier in this country to pass voter repression laws than it is to pass gun restriction laws. There's something wrong with that. And to have dialogues about that, talk about that. Does that make sense? Absolutely. As a matter of fact, I have a sneaking suspicion that fundamentalist religion is in behind both of those. Well, um, fundamentalism is a reaction that people have to fear and to change. And um, one of the things that evolutionary cosmology is about, and evolutionary cosmology didn't invent this, you know this, it, it simply is describing what has always been. We have always been involved in a system on this planet of change, growth, instability, reorganization, change, growth, instability, you know, the, the pattern that, that goes on. Where death, death is a part of this. And, and uh, Christians particularly have seen death as a big problem that God's going to solve for you. You don't really die. I mean, not no, really. No, I mean, <clears throat> I don't get it, reincarnated, but I get to go to heaven. Well, it depends on whether you believe the right stuff or not. <laughs> uh, well, I'm, I guess I don't get to go to heaven. I take that back. Jim Finley says that we have this notion that there's a soul in us that when we die sort of goes out and it orbits the earth for a couple of days or whatever. And then if you're conservative saved, it takes a right turn and goes to heaven. <laughs> and if you're liberal heretic, it takes a left turn and goes to who knows where. But... <laughs> You know, I, I, my teaching took a major shift from wanting to put together psychology and religion at, after 9-11 uh, to try to deal with fundamentalist religion. I started teaching the Bible more, uh, uh, talking about miracles, talking about the evolution of the Word, uh, which is not the Bible, and uh, coming to an understanding of Jesus as a, as a human teacher before he got um, made into this icon, uh, which, by the way, the, the earliest depiction of Jesus that we have is on the screen. And um, it is a dualistic, it's a non-dual picture because if you look at it, the two sides of the face of Jesus are very different. And um, it was, it, it encapsulated what the, early Christians before Constantine got a hold of the movement new, and uh, that is, it's all, it, it, there is this contradiction of opposites that we have to be willing to hold together. God's here, God's not here. We can talk about God, we can't talk about God. We can know God, we can't know God. All those things are true. And your brain can't hold it. You have to have some, way of sitting with the mystery to make that work. Well, I think that's spiritual practice, isn't it? It is. That is a spiritual practice. Um, and I'll, I'll close my remarks then by saying, Bill, uh, I have learned so much, grown so much, uh, uh, listening to your teachings in ordinary life that my spiritual practice really revolves around the very fact that you and I are sitting here speaking on this blue orb in this massive universe that we are even here, that we even exist. And that is the true ultimate question of, of nature is what, why, why is any of this here? And, and how is it that we are here to be able to observe the fact that we are? We're one of the few or maybe the only Species that knows we're going to die, that knows we live on a planet in a vast universe. Uh, and it's, uh, for me, a wonderful contemplation to stand back and ask, what does it all mean? Well, the, the evolutionary people, the cosmologists, are telling us that we, sitting here and others, are... Creation itself reflecting upon itself. 
we have a, an opportunity to reflect upon itself. And right now, humans are not doing a good job <laughs> of taking care of the system that birthed us. And um, those who are preaching dire things say we don't have much of a future unless we get to work caring for our mother, Earth. Um, I believe, and, and we got to go, but I, I believe, and you've heard, again, you've heard this before, that once, once we get to this position where we're not struggling about survival issues, our solemn op obligation is to grow Hmm. To grow in freedom and love. And you got to have headspace involved in that. Got to have a heart space involved in that. I know you. I know, for example, that yesterday you spent all day building bicycles to kids to have. It involves your hand space, heart, head, and hands. That's a spiritual practice, and you got to do it every day. There it is, folks. Uh, all the problems are solved. Thank you so much for doing oh, this. Oh, thank you, Bill. I love you. I love you. And uh, remember, not next Sunday, but in two weeks, we're going to meet in person. So no matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, remember this. You carry precious cargo. So watch your step. And Holly and I will see you here next week. Bye-bye.